At Wildwood Community Church, we are for following Jesus together to the glory of God. We're for the church, for the community, for the nations, and for the next generation. To contact us or for more information, see our website at wildwoodchurch.org. Today we're going to be continuing a sermon series that we began a few weeks ago called The New Way that is taking us to Galatians chapters 3 and 4. And in these two chapters, we see the new way of Jesus contrasted with the old way of the law and how the new way of Jesus is better. In fact, it is the way for us to relate to the God who created us as we live now, as we've talked throughout this series in the Jesus gospel era. God has made a way for us to know him and to relate to him. And we've been looking at that as Paul talks about it in Galatians 3 and 4, the last number of weeks. Uh, Today and then next Sunday, we're going to be wrapping up this series. And today we're going to specifically be looking at Galatians chapter 4, verses 8 through 20. But before we look at those verses this morning, I want to first talk a little bit about winning. I like to win. Anybody else here like to win? Uh, If I asked your spouse, your roommate, or your children if you like to win, what would they say? Um, My guess is most of us like to win. And, And yet, you know, how do we know if we have won? Well, in sports, it's actually quite easy to know if we have won. That's part of the reason why I think I like sports so much. If you're playing football or basketball or baseball or softball, if you score more than the other team, you win, right? For instance, if you score five and the other team scores one, then they call you national champions, Right? So, so this, is, this is what we know about sports. It's part of the reason why we like it. But, but it's not always if you score more. There are other sports like golf where if you score less, you win. If we go out and, and play a round of golf and, and, and Todd hits the ball, you know, 65 times on eight holes and I hit the ball 66 times, then, then he would win because he would hit it fewer times than me. So it, the rules are clear. And in other sports, it's if you hit the tape first, if we go out for a race at a track meet or a cross-country event like my son might participate in, it's who hits the tape first that the winner is identified. So in, in the world of sports, winners are, are, are easy to find. But in life, it's a little more difficult, isn't it? It's more difficult in the rest of our lives to know if we are winning. How do you know if you're winning in marriage? I mean, what what does that look like? Is there a scoreboard? How do you know if you're winning as a parent? Or if you won as a parent? Is there a scoreboard for such things? How do we know in your your work if you're, you're, you're winning or succeeding? Sometimes you think you know, but how do you really know? And even as it relates to our our spiritual life? How do we know if we are winning as a Christian? What does it look like for us to win in, in that regard? Well, since the beginning of time, knowing that people in our nature really hasn't changed, people from the beginning have wanted to win, and people have cared about their religion and their spiritual life. And so people have tried to define what it means to win a lot of different ways. And in a lot of different cultures around the world, there is a, a winning formula, religiously, spiritually speaking. That's true in our day. It's also certainly true in the day of the Apostle Paul. And there were those in the Galatian region who had followed Paul's ministry there, and they were going town to town trying to redefine the win for the Galatians. They were trying to tell them, if you really want to win in your spiritual life, it's going to look this particular way. 
Yeah, you can believe in Jesus, that's fine, but you also need to become a Jew. You, you also need to adhere to all of these ceremonial and ritual aspects of the Old Testament law. And if you do those things, then you'll be winning, but if you don't, you're going to lose. And that was the message that the opponents of the Apostle Paul, and really the opponents of the gospel of Jesus, were proclaiming in the Galatian region. And Paul writes in Galatians 3 and 4, and he wants to, to, to argue and reset the stage and let the Galatians know what winning looks like in the Christian life. Let, let them know what, what God desires to do in their lives. And we see that throughout this section, but in these verses that we're going to look at today, in Galatians 4, 8 through 20, we're going to find a little more specific, that idea of what winning looks like. See, the Galatians had lost their way because they had listened to the wrong people. They had defined the win the wrong way. Because of that, Paul made statements like this in chapter 4, verse 11. He said, I'm afraid for you, Galatians. I'm afraid for you that I've labored over you in vain. He says in verse 20, I'm perplexed about you. I wish I wasn't, but I am. There's something going on in the decisions that you're making, in the win that you've identified in your spiritual life. And Paul says, we need to set the record straight on what winning actually looks like as a follower of Jesus. Don't you want to know what that looks like? Well, let's see what God says about it in Galatians chapter 4, verses 8 through 20. If you've got a Bible turn there. I want to read these verses for us, and then after I read them, we'll come back and make a couple of observations. Galatians 4, Paul writes and says this, Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and the worthless elementary principles of the world whose slaves you want to be once more? You observe days and months and seasons and years. I'm afraid I may have labored over you in vain. Brothers, I entreat you, become as I am, for I also have become as you are. You did me no wrong. You know it was because of a bodily ailment that I preached the gospel to you at first, and though my condition was a trial to you, you did not scorn or despise me, but received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus. What then has become of your blessedness? For I testify to you that if possible, you would have gouged out your eyes and given them to me. Have I then become your enemy by telling you the truth? They make much of you, but for no good purpose. They want to shut you out that you may make much of them. It is always good to be made much of for a good purpose. And not only when I'm present with you, my little children, for whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. I wish I could be present with you now and change my tone, for I'm perplexed about you. Now, in these verses, we're going to see a couple of things that will help us know what the win is, what God is wanting to do in our lives, and what it isn't. Well, we'll begin with looking at what it isn't. The win, friends, is not just attend. God has something for us which is much greater than us just showing up and spending an hour together on Sundays, or if we're really devout, an hour on Sundays and another hour or two midweek. God actually has something more for us than us just participating in some kind of a ceremony or us sharing a number of rituals. 
God has something for us in Christ that is much greater and much, much better than that. Now, where do we see that idea embedded in these verses? Well, we see Paul talk about it in verses 8 through 17. So what does he say in that section? Well, in these verses, Paul is actually going to share some of his most personal comments inside of his entire letter to the Galatians. He's going to share with them, not Paul the theologian, a lot of what we have seen so far is pretty high theology, right? But instead, we're going to see Paul share Paul the person, Paul the pastor in these verses as he recounts his experience among them. Remember, Paul was connected to the Galatians because he took a trip, his first missionary journey, and he ended up in the region of Galatia. It's a region of the world that we know of as modern-day Turkey. He ended up in that region of the world, and he went town to town, and he was proclaiming the good news of Jesus everywhere he went. And a number of the Galatians believed And Paul talks about that experience that he had with them in these verses. Now, he talks about this in verses 12 to 15. He says, Galatians, when when I was with you, you did me no wrong. In in other words, you did did, did good, Galatians. When we were together, I mean, you were so kind to me. Paul goes on and says, I was among you, not at my best. Paul's like, I I wasn't experiencing my my absolute best moments on this planet when I showed up. But actually, I showed up and I was pretty sick. He says, it was even because of this bodily ailment that I ended up in your region to preach the gospel to begin with. Now, what was that bodily ailment? The answer, honestly, is we have no idea. The book of Acts that describes this missionary journey of Paul makes no mention of Paul's illness. It just says that they ended up in Galatia. But apparently, Paul had some kind of an illness that caused their itinerary to change, or maybe them to spend more days in the Galatian region than they had initially planned. Whatever the reason, Paul ended up spending some significant time there, and he was not at his best. But the Galatians didn't care. Even though he was a burden, even though he had some extra needs, they provided for him, and they they cared for him. He said, You all were so kind to me that you would have been willing to gouge out your own eyes and give them to me if you could, if that would have helped. Now, that's a pretty dramatic statement, isn't it? What Paul was saying was, he says, listen, you guys were exemplary when we were together. We were right here. Paul says, when I was among you, the Judaizers tried to kill me in all of your cities, and yet you defended me. You protected me. You believe the message that I shared, and you began this relationship with God through Jesus Christ as a result. Paul says, it was an amazing experience that we had. But then he goes on, and he says this. What happened? That was how it began. Now, how's it going? Why the change? Paul wanted to know. He said, what happened? What has become of your blessedness? Because when I was with you, we saw eye to eye. But then I left and I went back to Antioch, Paul said, and all I hear is that now you consider me your enemy. Now you think that I'm trying to lead you astray. What happened? Well, Paul knew what had happened. What had happened was there were were some people, these Judaizers who lived in that area, who were coming behind Paul and trying to convince the Galatians that there was something that they were missing. That, yeah, they could have Jesus, but they also needed to be circumcised and become a Jew. 
They could have Jesus, but they also needed to celebrate all of the rites and the rituals of the Old Testament law. All the ceremonies needed to be adhered to. They could have Jesus, but Jesus wasn't enough. They needed Jesus plus something else. And and Paul says, now that I'm away, you have come to their way of thinking and not stayed with me in mine. And that created a problem. And it was led by these Judaizers. Now, something interesting about these these Judaizers is that they were not people who were actually interested in the betterment of the Galatians. But they actually were people that, that wanted the Galatians to do something for them. In other words, they wanted their Jewish festivals to have more people that showed up at those festivals. They wanted to be able to to pound their chest to their friends in other towns and say, so many people think that we're cool because our rooms are full and all of these people have embraced our style and manner and way of living. They saw the Galatians, the Judaizers did, as people who existed to make them look good. Maybe they wanted their money. They certainly wanted the reputation that came from them. But the problem was that in the midst of that, it was leading to actual spiritual harm for the Galatians. See, they were, they were wanting them to, to go back and to take something like this list of rules and make that list of rules their God. But that list of rules was no one's God. He, he, they wanted them to, to, to go and to become enslaved again to the weak and the worthless elementary principles of the world. Now, we saw what that phrase referred to last week. This phrase, weak and worthless elementary principles, was like the ABCs and the one, two, threes of religion. It was all the you shoulds and you need tos. Specifically, we see here that Paul is talking about those ABCs and one, two, threes of religion as it relates to ceremonies and rituals. There were a number of ceremonies and rituals, special days and months and seasons that they were supposed to adhere to. And, and these Judaizers were coming to the Galatians and saying, if you really want to be right with God, then you need to have all of these extra things that you're doing. And if you do all of those extra things, then God will accept you and welcome you. But if you don't, then you're going to be on the outs with him. That was what they were promising. But Paul saw what was really happening. The more they depended on days and weeks and seasons and years, the more distant they were away from God. See, God had not saved them so that they might just show up at a bunch of ceremonies. God had saved them so that they would have a real relationship with him, that they would know God and God knew them. It was a relationship and not a religion that God was after as it related to the Galatians. But the more they focused on the religion, the more they lost the relationship. And so Paul writes and says, I'm really, really concerned Because it sure seems like you are becoming a slave to the religion and you're missing the relationship with God that is available to you through Jesus Christ. Now, what's what's fascinating about that is we think about why the Galatians would have made that decision. Why would the Galatians be be floating back to religion when they had access to a real relationship with God. 
what was going on in their hearts and in their lives. You see, when we think about uh, an experience like the prodigal son, you remember the, the story of the prodigal son? The story of the prodigal son is about a son who looks at his dad and says, Dad, I, I don't want you to be alive anymore. I'd rather have your stuff than you. So the dad gives him his share of the inheritance, and the son goes and blows all of that inheritance and then eventually ends up penniless and, and sleeping in a pigsty and decides, I need to go home. And, and if I go home, maybe my father will receive me again into his house as a slave. That was the story that he had rehearsed because he was saying, I don't think I deserve to be a son. Now, it's possible when we think of this that we were thinking that the Galatians were saying we have the opportunity to have access to God as his son, a direct relationship by God, to be known by him and to know him and to relate to him. It's possible that we have access to that, but that seems like something that I don't deserve. But that's not what the Galatians were were doing. It wasn't so much that they were, were saying that I don't deserve to be a son of God. What, what perplexed Paul so much is that they were basically saying, I don't desire to have that kind of a relationship with God. What I desire is a religion. What I desire is a ceremony. What I desire is a ritual. And Paul said, the more that you pursue the ceremony and the ritual, the more damage it might cause to the relationship that is available to you to God himself. Now, friends, this is the situation that was going on with the, with the Galatians. But I want to, to just take a moment, and I want us to, to begin to connect this a little more to our world and to our life. You see, it, it's possible, friends, that when we think about what it means to win at the Christian life, you might be tempted to think that winning at the Christian life means attending a lot of stuff because that's maybe what you're most familiar with. That winning at the Christian life is, if, if, like if every meeting that Wildwood had in 2021 was on a chart, and that chart had a box. And if you show up, you get to put a gold star in that box. And then if it's a week that you go Sunday and Wednesday, well, you get two stars in that box. See, sometimes we think that winning in the Christian life is having our name and buy it a list of boxes of attendance and lots of gold stars of attending. And we might even have been conditioned that way early in our life. As I described that, it might sound like something that you did growing up. Now, friends, it is not a problem for us to attend. As a matter of fact, when we show up, it's an expression of who we are. It's an opportunity for us to connect with others. It's an opportunity for us to to sing praise to God. But we don't show up because that's the sum total of our religion. Our religion is not just about attending different ceremonies and rituals and being in different rooms. God wants something more than just that. To say it another way, Jesus did not die and rise again just so that we might be enslaved by a spiritual schedule. God wants something more for you, and God wants something more for me than just attending. You see, if it's just about attending, you know who that benefits the most? Whoever is on the stage. I'm just going to be honest. It's always more exciting in a full room. It just is. Greg, would you agree? Yeah, it's, it's, it's just, it just is at times. It's more fun because there's more energy, and it feels like something's happening, Right? Attendance does that for those on the stage. But Christianity is not about making those on stages feel good. 
Christianity is about something so much greater than that. Christianity is not about what you can do for people on stages. Christianity is about what God wants to do in your lives. The win is not just attending. There's something more. So what is it? If it's not just about attending, what is it? Well, Paul lets us know as he continues in these verses. The win is Christ within. The win is Christ within. I'm not a very good poet. That's the best I can do. But the win of what God is trying to do is to see Christ formed in you. It's not something that God wants from you. It's something that God wants for you. It's not something that God just wants to work around you. It's about something that God wants to work in you. Why did Jesus come and bleed and die? Why such a costly price to be paid? Not just so that we could fill a seat on a Sunday, but so that Jesus Christ might be formed in your lives. Now, we see this quite clearly in verses 18 and 19. Paul says, it's always good to be made much of for a good purpose. Paul said, they were making much of you so that they would feel good and you would show up to their meetings. But Paul says, I have made much of you for a different purpose. He said, I visited you. I wrote you letters for a different purpose than you making me feel good. Paul says, I showed up and I labored among you for a very particular purpose. He says, not only when I'm present with you, my little children, for whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. Paul says, I am going to just exert every bit of energy I have to see God do something in your life. That was Paul's call as missionary. That's the right call of, of anyone in ministry. It's not to, to receive some kinds of blessings personally, but it's to see God do something in the lives of others that's remarkable, that's supernatural, that's beyond anything that any attendance could ever accomplish. It's the transformation of our souls. It's that we might be formed like Christ. Now, what is this idea of being formed like Christ? What, what's, what's, what's the idea? Well, this word form is it's, it's a verb I, it's a verb form. It's talking about something that, that's going to happen. In something being formed, that phrase is used of an artist creating a statue, right? So an artist has an idea in their head, but you can't see that idea. In order for that idea to be something that we can all appreciate, that artist has to take that idea and turn it into a product of some kind. And so the idea that we can't see becomes represented in the statue that we can see. And what Paul is saying here is he says, the Jesus that you can't see, Jesus had ascended to heaven, the Jesus that you can't see will become visible among you. How? As Christ is formed in you. That's how we will come to know Jesus, is as we see him be formed in the lives of those around us. I come to know more about Christ as I see Christ formed in the life of my friend, Gain. I come to know more about Christ as I see Christ formed in the life of Carolyn or of Eva. This is, this is what happens in these moments. 
This is why we, we gather as a church family. Christ is being formed in us, and as we gather around each other, we see expressions of Jesus in three dimensions, in the way that we care for one another, in the things that we think about, all of those kinds of ways. Now, what's interesting is we think about, you know, Jesus, what he does, and and Christ being formed around us. We need to be reminded that Jesus is raising the bar. You know, when I talk about how our life is not about just our adherence to a bunch of rules, you know what the common objection to that is? Pastor, if you tell people that the Christian life is not about just doing a bunch of things, then maybe they won't do anything. If you tell people that they don't have to show up to be saved, maybe they won't show up. If you say that they don't have to be in community with others in in order to, 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 to live out the Christian life, then maybe they'll never be a part of a Sunday school class or a small group. And if, if you say they don't have to serve, then maybe our children's classes will be empty and there won't be anyone serving in those rooms. See, that's a temptation. And if we, we take that further, if you tell them it's not about what they do, then maybe they'll make just a bunch of terrible choices in their moral lives as well. Well, the reality is when we say that our spiritual life is not about just adhering to a bunch of rules, we're not lowering the bar, we're actually raising it because what we're saying and what Paul was saying was that it's not the, the, these, these laws are removed, we're out from under those laws, so do whatever you want, but it says that we are now in a different situation where our identity has changed and Christ has come to dwell within us, and so his life is being lived out through us, which raises the bar, not lowers it. Think about the issue of love. It's not just any old kind of love. We can't just define it any way we want to, but we're to love as Jesus loves. That's a high call. That's not lowering the bar. That's raising it. It's not just externals just showing up and and being a part of a bunch of meetings or have a bunch of gold stars by your name, but it's about our inside being transformed into the nature of Christ. See, friends, we see Jesus raising the bar And he raises that bar as Christ is formed in us. Now, what does that actually look like for Christ to be formed in us? Well, it means that Jesus' life becomes more visible because of our lives. And that has an implication in a lot of areas. So let's think about Jesus' life and what that looked like. You know, somebody came up to Jesus in Matthew 22 and they said, Jesus, tell us what this whole thing is all about. Jesus answered and said, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. That was how Jesus responded to that question. And so the life of Jesus is a life that is going to perfectly live out these things. So if Christ is to be formed in us, then we might see something like this happening in our lives. Christ being formed in us means that we will have right theology. This is the idea of loving the Lord our God with all of our minds. You know, sometimes when we think of theology, we're tempted to dismiss it as irrelevant. We're tempted to think that, you know, if we're going to talk about Christ being formed, let's get really practical, Pastor, and let's talk about a bunch of things that we're supposed to be doing. We don't need to talk about theology to that end. But here's the challenge with that thought. How much theology is in the letter to the Galatians? We've been walking through these verses most of 2021, and I've had people come up to me and say, Pastor, I feel like I'm in a theology class 
right now as we're walking through these verses. Paul is teaching high theology throughout this, you know, three-fourths of the book of Galatians. And he's doing so because he desires that Christ is formed in them. But where in them? In their minds. That they would think accurately about who they are, about who God is, about what was going on in the world around them. Theology helps our minds get on the right page. And it's super important that that happens in our lives. If we want Christ to be formed in us, we need to have our thoughts shaped to the thoughts of Christ. And that happens as we look at the Scripture. That happens as we read it on our own. That happens as we gather here and we read it together. It happens as we sing songs that are inspired by the words on these pages. We are wrapping our minds in a right way around right theology. That's what it means for Christ to be formed in us, for what we think about to be transformed the way Jesus thinks about it. But not only is it right theology, but it's also right emotion. If, if we're thinking accurately about things, you know what will happen on the inside of us? We'll begin caring the way Jesus cares. When we understand the, the value of other people, it, something happens on the inside of us. We begin caring about other people the way that Jesus cares about them. It affects our emotion. It affects our will. Christ is formed not just in our minds, but he's also formed in our souls, in our emotions, and in our will. And if our mind is impacted, and our hearts are impacted, then guess what else is impacted? Our deeds, what we do, is impacted because what we're thinking about and what we're feeling is going to propel us in the direction of doing things that Jesus does because his life is being formed in us. We're going to love him with all of our strength as the deeds of Christ become our deeds. The things he would do, we do. And all of that will ultimately have an impact, not just on the individual, but in the world around that individual. That's this idea of a righteous love experienced by others, loving our neighbor as ourself. See, Christ is formed in us, not just so that we can sit there and go, wow, I am really cool because Christ is formed in me. Christ is formed in us so that those around you might be able to look at you and come to know more about Jesus Christ. That's what God is doing. What God is doing in the world is much more than us just attending ceremonies and rituals and meetings and services. But what is happening is that there is a transformation that is happening in our lives that will reveal Christ. The Jesus we can't see becomes visible as people interact with us. Now, I, when I say that, that's a little intimidating, right? Because we're aware that we're going to fall short of that standard. But guess what? God's aware of that too. That's why Jesus died, to, to take the penalty for our sins, because we're going to live this out imperfectly. But our lives and the purpose of our life is that over time, our lives are being transformed into the image of Christ so that as people interact with us, they see more of Jesus and less of us. That's what maturity looks like. That's what the win looks like in the Christian life. And so with all of that said, let me just ask you this question. When people look at you, do they see Jesus? When people look at you, do they see Jesus? 
Can they know more? If, if you were the only book they ever read, what would they come to know about your Lord, the one that you follow by interacting with you? How would someone know that our God is patient if we are impatient? How would someone know that our God is forgiving if we are unforgiving? How would someone know that our God is, is loving if we are unloving? How would someone know that our God has truth? It's not just anything, but that he defines it if, if we let the world around us define every part of the truth around us, right? We are revealing in the things that we care about and the way that we interact with people and how we interact in society, we're revealing who Jesus is to each other and to a watching world. It is a wonderful diagnostic tool for us to just think about what would people know about Jesus? For those of you who are in high school or in middle school, I want you to just think for a moment. If the only Bible that your school classmates ever read was you, what would they come to know about Jesus? For, for those of you who work, if the only Bible they ever read was your life, how would those that you work with and interact with on a regular basis, what would they come to know about the one that you call your Lord by interacting with you? Friends, this exercise is, is not just for, for us to feel bad, but it's for us to realize what God wants to do. It's not just have us fill a seat for an hour on a Sunday. It's for Christ to be formed in our lives so that we might relate to God as our Father with His Spirit inside of us and that we might reveal the nature of our Savior to each other and to the world around us. Friends, this is not just about Sunday. It's about Monday through Sunday. It's only about the days that end in why. That's, that's what God has for us, something far greater than we, we often sell it short. You know, I've often heard people make comments that, you know, we really just want to be a part of like a New Testament church. Right? And people mean different things when they make comments like that. Sometimes they think, you know, being a part of a New Testament church is to be a part of a church that has a certain style or, or the way that they do things. But when I look at the New Testament, you know what I see? You know what a real New Testament church is? A real New Testament church is a Monday through Sunday church. Not just as they gather, but as they live. The real church, we gather like a team gets in a huddle. Right? We, we get around, we learn the plays, we encourage one another, but then we break that huddle and we leave and we go and we do something. We go and we live that life. That's what the New, church, New Testament church is. It's not a church that stays in a room. It's a church that is salt and light in the world. And so, friends, as we gather here today, I just want to encourage you that God wants so much more for you. He's not trying to take something from you. He has something for you. And I want you to know that though I live this out imperfectly, as a pastor, I get my direction from verses like this. What does it look like to win as a pastor? It's not to have people show up and clap at the end of sermons. It's to see Christ formed in the hearts and lives of people. 
so that wherever you go, Christ is known because they see him in you. That's not something that any individual can do, but the Holy Spirit of God rests in you if you know Christ, and he can do it. We're just fanning flames. So having said all of that, I sure hope you come back next week. <laughs> but as you come back, we'll, we'll, we'll look at the plays, we'll be reminded of who we are, and then we'll break the huddle and we'll go see Christ formed in us. Father God, thank you so much for this great truth. Thank you for the chance to share it together today as a church family. I, I pray that you would help us to just live in dependence upon you, that we wouldn't default back to making our spiritual life just about showing up. But Lord, we would, we would show up in order to be reminded of who we are. And then we would break the huddle and we would go and we would live that identity among your people and among the world that is watching so that Christ may be known. Thank you that you've entrusted such an incredible task to us. And thank you that you have provided the spirit to make it possible. We thank you and we pray these things in Jesus' name. And everyone said, Amen. Mm-hmm.